Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance uh, or Real Estate Finance. This hap uh, uh, California Real Estate Finance, or as we call it, Real Estate 320. This happens to be show number six. What we're going to be doing today is continuing on with the discussion that we had the last time where we're talking about sources of funds and the primary market. If you remember the last time we just talked about, you know, the initial starting of the savings and loans, we talked about different places that you could borrow money. Uh, this chapter basically deals a lot with what we commonly refer to as direct uh, direct lenders, direct and indirect lenders, but where do you go, you know, and what we said was if you're talking about a direct lender, you're talking about the person that you actually go down to, fill out the loan application with, they collect your uh, your pay stubs, your income taxes uh, forms, they collect all that documentation to help the uh, loan process get started. And in that particular case, that could be somebody like a, uh, a Washington Mutual. It could be something like a Viatech mortgage. It could be um, or countrywide funding. It could be Bank of America, Wells Fargo Bank. It can be a credit union. Those were direct lenders. Uh, the other one that we started to talk about before the class was over is something called indirect lenders. And what essentially that means is that these are organizations that make real estate loans, but they are not, you don't call them up on the telephone or you don't show up at their office and ask them to make a loan for you to help purchase a home or to refinance a home. They're normally, they do their lending through somebody called an intermediary or what we would sometimes call a mortgage banker or a loan correspondent. That's what we're talking about there. And in some cases, some of these indirect lenders don't make loans on just single-family homes. They're usually talking about making fairly large loans to things like shopping centers, office buildings, uh, construction projects, things like that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to move over here in a minute, uh, and I'll go to the document camera. The other thing I wanted to mention that I'm going to be doing during this show, too, is probably somewhere along the line, maybe after about 15, 20 minutes, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be going to the Internet. And I think this is really important because in your Blackboard website for this class, under what I've identified as Chapter 3, I have put probably at this point 12 or 13 links to all of the different organizations or topical areas that this chapter talks about. So I'm going to be spending some time going over those websites, not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but quite a few of them. So it will give you an idea of places you can go to to get additional information, not only for this class, but also as a personal consumer. There's one site that I'm going to show you which I think does a really good job or an example of a really good job, which is Wells Fargo, that you can get a lot of information if you're looking at buying a home, refinancing a home, what the current interest rates are, how to calculate your mortgage payments, and I'm going to show you that today. So anyway, I want to finish up what we the discussion that's in the chapter. I'm going to be moving over here for a second to my uh, old friendly document camera, or you'll be seeing it here on the screen. What we were talking about the last time was somebody called indirect lenders. Again, these are organizations that do not you do not go down there and get fill a loan application out with them. What they are is they are larger types of organization. The first one that we're talking about is a pension plan. And we talked about that the last time. And what I referred to was the fact that pension plans are things like, for example, uh, if you're a state employee for California, you'd have something like CalPERS. 
If you belong in your teacher, you'd have the California State Teachers Association. We're talking about places where employees have a certain amount of money taken out of their paycheck on a regular basis. Every payday, you may get paid once a week or every two weeks or once a month, whatever. And it's put aside and it's put into a pension fund. Sometimes those pension funds are where you're just putting the money in yourself and uh, then it's invested for you. Sometimes you put in a certain amount of money and your employer puts in a certain amount of money. And then normally, if, if, if you have that kind of a plan, what happens is you work for the organization for whatever, so many years, and after you've had a number of years that you've worked there, you become vested, and the vesting means that not only is the money in the plan your money that you put in, but also the money that your employer was putting in is also your money, okay? But the point is, is that when this money is put into this plan, the concept behind it is, is that somebody has to invest it and invest it wisely and safely and prudently so that when your day comes to retire, you will have money available for you to, you know, sit on the beach and go fishing or, you know, go out and boat or just relax and have a paycheck show up in your mailbox every week or every month. So anyway, that's what a pension plan is. Now, what they do is that they typically do not make direct loans, although I think CalPERS does make some direct loans if you're uh, an employee of the state of California, which is another thing I'm not going to talk about right now. But normally, if you're talking about a, a large pension company or a large pension group, they're doing things like buying, uh, they're buying shares uh, or buying bonds through... Uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. In other words, they're investing in that market, in the secondary market of buying blocks of mortgages. And essentially what ends up happening is that those companies want to invest their millions and millions of dollars. They want it in a safe, secure place. They go to some place like a Fannie Mae. They buy those bonds. That, so that's where Fannie Mae gets its money. Fannie Mae then takes and pledges those mortgages that it has purchased as a security for that bond. And then, and then the uh, pension plan receives some form of a dividend or an interest payment on the bond. That's how it basically works. And pension plans, you can talk about the big pension plans. Also, there are people that will directly invest in real estate loans through as individuals through their 401k plans. Sometimes their individual retirement accounts, or we refer to as IRAs. Okay. So anyway, that's one of the sources of making loans. Another source of loans is what we call insurance companies. Now, by the way, keep in mind that both pension plans and insurance companies both, if you think back to when we were talking about what the banks are dealing with, the banks have where somebody's coming in, put their money in today, then they're turning around writing a check and the money goes right back out again tomorrow. You know, even if it's a business, the business deposits all its money today that it made from selling donuts yesterday, and tomorrow it's writing checks out for payroll and for... Uh, supplies and things like that. Pension plans and insurance companies, when that money goes in there, it's stable. It goes in there for a long term. Both of those plans, both pension and insurance companies, know that the money is going to be with them not for a couple days, but for years. So they're looking for more long-term types of investments is what they're looking for. And their cash, their money is very stable. And these pension plans and insurance companies have gotten to be huge, the amount of money that they're managing. So anyway, insurance companies are another one, as we mentioned. And when I talk about insurance companies, we're talking about places like, if you will, Mutual of Omaha, okay, which has the Wild Kingdom uh, animal show. 
Uh, you're talking about New York Life, Metropolitan Life. Those are insurance companies that are investing in or types of insurance companies that are investing. They sometimes will also, if it's insurance companies, will participate by buying these bonds. They'll also sometimes directly lend money on large projects like an office building or a shopping center. They may also ask when they lend the money to have not only lend the money but have a portion of the ownership interest. So, for example, they may say, we will lend you the money on the project, but we want to have a 10% ownership interest, as an example. And the concept behind that is that they're going to, first of all, receive income in the form of interest on the money that they've lent the developer to build, say, the shopping center. But the other thing is by have a, having a participation ownership interest in the property, when the day comes that they get ready to sell that property, they're going to be able to get earn hopefully some additional money due to the appreciation or the increased value of the property. So they participate in it. So that's another thing that they do. Okay. The next group that we talk about here is somebody called mortgage brokers. And I have a website uh, for um, uh, that I'll be showing you in a minute. Mortgage brokers are people that put together two different types of individuals. On one hand, a mortgage broker is in contact with people that want to invest money in real estate. And at the same time, they are in contact with people that want to borrow money. And what they do, just like, for example, what a real estate broker is, they know somebody that wants to sell a house and they know somebody that wants to buy a house. Okay, And they make income like a real estate broker but does. They make money based on putting that transaction together. A mortgage broker, on the other hand, does the same thing. They know somebody that has money that they want to invest in mortgages, and they have somebody that wants to borrow money. And they make a fee based on putting them together. They also may make money based on the fact that they're servicing the loan. Uh, for example, when that loan is finally put together, the person that's borrowing the money has to send their payments someplace. So they could very well turn around and send those payments back to the mortgage broker who has a department that called the servicing department that will collect that monthly fee, will remit back to the uh, holder of the note or the mortgage, you know, the person that lent the money, the interest in principal. They may very well also take and pay out of the money that's received from the person that borrowed. Maybe they'll be paying the property taxes. They may be paying the insurance. Okay, so that's what, so they may have that servicing component to go with it also. Okay, so that's what a mortgage broker does. Another term that you'll hear in many cases, is somebody called a mortgage banker, okay, or mortgage companies. And what they basically do, and I'll try to use this as a simple example, what they typically do is they usually will go out, they will turn around and lend money out. They can be on, on refinancing a property, it can be on purchasing a property, whatever, but they'll lend the money out. Where do they originally get the money from? They probably have gone to the bank initially and borrowed on a short-term loan some money to put together the sources of funds. They've gone ahead and originated mortgages, which means that they've gone out and done all, you know, this is the person that you go to. This would be like a Viatech company or a countrywide funding, that kind of a, of a company. They'll go out, they'll collect all the paperwork, they'll qualify the people, they'll do the FICA score background or the credit check, they'll do the income check, they'll make sure that people work in the place, the normal processing part of the, of the uh, loan. 
And what they'll do is after they've done so many of these loans, they'll turn around and they'll sell them on the secondary market. When they sell them on the secondary market, hopefully they'll sell it for enough money that they'll make a profit. They come back, they replenish that resource of funds, and they repeat the entire process over and over again. So they're more or less in the, in the fact of the mortgage origination or creation process. One of the th terms that they use in your book that I wanted to point out is that right down here at the bottom, this is a term maybe you haven't heard before. It says mortgage bankers do not keep portfolio loans. Portfolio loans means like a bank, for example, may make a loan on a home, just as an example. And what would happen is that would be a very good, solid loan, a very nice interest rate. And the bank may say, you know what, I'm not going to sell that loan on the secondary market. I'm just going to keep it in my portfolio and collect the interest every month. It's, I'm getting a good return on my money. That's a portfolio loan. They may very well later on sell it, but they can also keep it if they want to. In this case, though, it says they will sell. Okay, so mortgage bankers do not keep portfolio loans. They will sell their loans in the secondary market as soon as they have seasoned. Okay? And it says the seasoned loan is one that has been held for a sufficient amount of time to establish the borrowers making the payments in a timely manner, often 6 to 12 months. Okay, often the mortgage banker will retain and sell the servicing of the loan separately from the loan itself. So in other words, what's happened is the mortgage banker, again, has made the loans, has maybe been collecting the interest payments on it, principal and interest payments on it. They've been providing the service. In other words, you got it from this company. You made out. You, you're making, you know, the uh, person that's been borrowing the money has been making the monthly payments to that company. Seasoned is just like anything else, like we talk about in cooking. Seasoning is where we kind of put some stuff on it and let it set for a while. It's the same thing. What we're doing is we're looking to see if the people that borrow the money are continuing to make the monthly payments. If they've made the payments for a number of months, there's a good confidence level that they're going to continue to do that. So now the loan has become valuable. And what they'll do is after a period of time, they'll turn around and they'll sell it on the secondary market. Again, they may very well say, you know, I'll sell it to Fannie Mae, but in the meantime, what I'll do is I'll maintain the servicing because I have a servicing department that's all set up to collect those payments and make the payments of interest, principal, taxes, and insurance to whoever needs to get that money. So, in other words, that's how they basically work, right? The next one is something called real estate investment trusts, okay? These are other types of people that make Loans. Typically, they are on larger properties. They're not on small properties. They're on larger properties. Again, the concept behind these people, this is like, for example, this would be an analogy to this would be like a, a, how a mutual fund works. Uh, for those of you may, that may not know the way a mutual fund works is that, you know, you know, typically what will happen, for example, you may have a mutual fund that owns stock and companies. And the reason why the mutual funds exist is for two reasons. Number one is is that maybe the stock that, that this mutual fund is buying is uh, costs so much money that not one individual could b turn around and buy enough shares of that at one time. Okay, so what will happen is collectively, if we put a group of people together, then we could turn around and maybe buy you know, for $10 a payday, buy 100 shares of IBM, as an example. Okay, so in other words, it puts collectively a group of people together that can buy the shares. The second thing that a mutual fund does is that it spreads the risk. So in other words, instead of investing in one company, it'll invest in a lot of different companies, 
And so that, so that if one company's stock value goes down, it doesn't have a dramatic effect on the whole entire portfolio. That's a sad thing that hap- has happened to a lot of people, uh, you know, that you've read about in, in the newspaper, um, like, for example, Enron and some of those companies where people ha- invested their life savings while they worked there in that company, and the company became worthless. Well, that happened to be due to fraud, or at least they believe it's fraud. But the fact is, is everybody one day maybe had four or five hundred thousand dollars worth of stock, and the next day it's, worth, it's worthless. So, in order to mitigate or control that risk, you can invest in a, a large variety of companies. So, if one goes down, it doesn't have an effect on your entire portfolio. Real estate investment trusts have the same concept. The idea is that you want to invest in real estate. You like real estate. You understand it. You think you have a good feel for it, but you're not the kind of person that wants to buy a single-family home and have renters rent it out and go over there on the weekend with a hammer and a saw and fix the fence that fell down. You don't want to do that. And what you'd really like to do is maybe have a piece of something like a large apartment building or shopping center, but you don't have the money. You don't have the four, five million, ten million, twenty million dollars to invest in it. So what you'll do is you'll put your money in something called the real estate investment trust. That trust will have professional management. It will typically have a group of individuals that will be investing in that, and then the management people will go out and select the property. Uh, in other words, acquire it, manage it, manage the day-to-day activities, collect the, ma- the rent, make the payments, and then finally remit back any profits to you on some basis, either quarterly, semi-annually, or annually. Okay. There are certain requirements for uh, a REIT to exist, and they go down here, and I'm going to show you in a, in a few minutes a web page that reiterates the same thing. Again, a REIT, the whole concept is, hey, I can have a piece of a large piece of property, okay, but I don't have to, you know, that's professionally managed, okay, but I don't have to worry about the day-to-day activities. I have professional management that takes care of it. Now, in order to have a REIT, there are certain things that you have to have. Number one, it cannot hold property primarily for sale to customers. In other words, a REIT is designed for the fact of acquiring, managing, investing, maybe turning a property around. In other words, long-term investment. If your property is where you're buying something and you're flipping houses or you're flipping properties, that's not what a REIT does. You're looking for something that's, you know, in other words, like when we say homes for sale, like, for example, if you take a look at uh, a lot of brand-new homes, you know, the developer builds the homes, has models, Builds homes that people want, sells them, moves on to the next project. REITs don't do that. REITs are looking for a long-term type of investment is what you're looking for, okay? Not for properties you're going to buy and sell on a regular basis. Number two, a REIT, it must have at least 100 beneficial owners. 100 people must be in here that own it. Number three, no five persons or less can hold 50% of the beneficial interest, which means that we can't have a small group of people that are controlling this large organization. Okay, we have to split that ownership up. So we don't have somebody that just by the very nature of their ownership is controlling the direction that the organization is going. It's supposed to be fair and honest the way it's operated. Number four, it must issue shares or certificates of interest, just like you would stock certificates. Each share must have a proportionate voting value in the trust. So that means if you have 100 shares, or whatever amount of shares you have, that same voting interest. Your vote is worth the same as everybody else's is. You don't have different levels. Number five, 95% of the gross income must be 
from investments, okay? In other words, the income that you receive has to be coming in from property that you own, okay, from investments. And finally, number seven, it says 75% of the income must be from real estate investments. So in other words, these real estate investment trusts will own real estate, but they'll also probably have a certain amount of their money put aside in something like uh, certificates of deposit or some other kind of financial vehicle, for, if for no other reason, to provide some kind of liquidity that they need. But at least 75% of your income must be coming from these real estate investments. Now, the advantage of a REIT, the reason why people have a REIT, which is a, very similar to a neutral fund, is that it's not double taxed, okay? Now, just you may or may not know this, but a corporation like IBM, Intel, you know, Tower Records, whoever, they're corporations. Whenever they, they're like a, not only a corporation, a company, but they're like a legal entity. They're like a human being. So when that corporation makes money, they actually pay a corporate tax, okay? And then they pass on to you something called dividends. When you receive those dividends, you pay tax on those dividends. So essentially what ends up happening is you're taxed twice. The corporation gets taxed once, you get taxed as an individual. With the REIT, you pass on that those profits directly to the investor, so it's only taxed once. So you don't get this double taxation effect, okay? And then finally, I think we're getting close to here. They talk about the Internet, and they talk about private individuals. Do private individuals make loans? Yes, they do. Most people, and it, it says this right here. This, is, this probably suffices right here. It says the majority of these individuals that make these kinds of loans are sellers who extended credit to the purchasers. It is referred to taking back or carrying back part of the sales price, often in the form of a season second mortgage. How do people end up in this situation? Right now, the interest rates are, have been tightening up. They look like they're starting to loosen up. But back in the 19, late 70s and early 80s, during that period of time, the interest rates were like 12, 13, 14, 15 percent. I remember days that it was 22 percent. And what ended up happening, if you wanted to sell a home, you know, people that could buy, that wanted to buy it, just couldn't get a loan at an interest rate that made any kind of sense at all. So you were faced, if you were the owner of the home, with two possibilities. Actually, three. Number one, you could turn around and just hold on to the home and rent it out. Number two, you could turn around and just say, well, forget about it. If I can't sell it, I'll just let it go to foreclosure. Or three, you could sell the property and you could agree to take back your equity in the form of a second loan. So, for example, if you had a piece of property that you were going to sell and maybe the value of it was $200,000, what would happen is, is and maybe you only owed, say, $150,000 on it, you may very well during that period of time had had the new buyer agree to assume the first loan and then you would carry your equity say that $50,000 in the form of a second loan. And what would happen is, is that after your real estate transaction closed, you would expect to get your monthly payments. And, you know, if you had negotiated the loan, some of those loans might be for like five years in length, 10 years, 15 years, 20, 30 years, whatever. Typically, they were usually something like a five-year loan amortized as if it was going to get paid off in 30 years, but all due and payable in five years. What would happen is you would carry that loan and you would just sit there and get monthly payments, month after month after month until it was paid off. Okay, 
Why did you do that? Not because you wanted to do it, but because there was no other way of selling the property. Also, there are people that like real estate, and they understand it, and they understand this second mortgage business, and they are actively involved and actively seek out investing their money in the second mortgage market, and they do very, very, very well. They can get a very high rate of return because they'll buy that mortgage that the owner took back for $50,000, and they may say to the owner, listen, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll, I'll give you cash today for that mortgage, but I'm not going to give you $50,000. I'm going to give you 30000 or I'm going to give you 40000 Well, when you buy that mortgage, you're going to still continue to get monthly payments as if you, from that original owner. But in the case of you're the investor, you haven't put up the 50000 You've only maybe put up the 30000 So you get a high rate of return on your money. So a lot of people do that, okay, seasoned investors. Okay. I think at this point, uh, they talk about a couple other things, but I'm getting close to where I want to br go on the Internet here in a minute. Uh, they do finally say down here that uh, they say that the authors would be remiss if the effect of the Internet on lending was not discussed over the past 10 years. The use of the uh, both home, computers, and the Internet has become available to virtually every American household. You know, I honestly and truly can think back to probably around 1994, 1995. Many of you may not realize it, but 1994, 1995 was when we had the first web browser that we could use, that we could negotiate. It was code called Mosaic. Okay, later on became Netscape. Uh, that we could actually point and click graphical user interface. That browser made the entire internet take off and go right through the roof. During that period of time, and we're only talking, we're talking about being in 2006 now, so we're only talking about 10 or 11 years ago. And if you think about 10 or 11 years ago, say 11 or 12 years ago, you didn't have the internet as we understand it today. You had to know how to log on and how to do this little thing on, on a text-based thing on a Unix platform. Then all of a sudden the browser came along and just opened the entire world. Today, in those short period of time, 10 or 11 years, we no longer, most people are doing almost all their banking online. They're making their travel reservations online. They're shopping for homes online. That's why there's this big emphasis now on why we're going to be doing a class in computer applications and real estate in the spring. I mean, every single person is doing everything online. You Today, 10 or 11 years ago, you would be standing in line if you wanted to register for classes over here in the administration building, you go over there today, all of you are registering, and yet we're not seeing you. You're doing it all online. It's quite possible today, in some cases, for you to actually apply to the college, register for a class, take the class, pass the exam, get a grade, and get a transcript and never show up on the campus. So, I mean, this the Internet is a very powerful tool that we're utilizing today, and everybody seems to know how to use it from five year old, my five-year-old granddaughter to people that are probably close to 100. So the, the thing I want to do now is to show you some stuff that's on the Internet. I'm going to be showing you a few things here, and I'll be flipping over in a minute uh, once I get the whole gizmo fly, fired up here, some links that I have in the Blackboard website. Again, I know that some of you depending upon your TV, may or may not be able to see this as clear as a bell, but that's why I have these links under Chapter 3, under Website Links, so you can actually go there and see what I'm going to be talking about if it looks at all fuzzy. So what I'm going to do is I've got your normal Blackboard website set up. 
what I'm going to do is go in here and go to something called Website Links. And again, as I mentioned before, I happen to have them in, in the chapter order. This is Chapter 3, which is talking about sources of funds in the primary market. So I'm going to click on here. And a couple things I'm going to kind of walk around here and just show you. Some of it I'll show you very quickly, and some of it I'll just uh, basically uh, you know, spend quite a bit of time explaining it. First of all, uh, the financial crisis that we had in the banking industry in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, in that period of time, specifically the 80s, there's a link here that was in your book that I put in here for you that actually talks about that particular, particular fiasco, okay? And I just want to point out that all of the articles that I have here, uh, I'm going to go down right here. This is the part right here which talks about the banking crisis of the 1980s and early 1990s. So I want you to see that, you know, we all the things that are in the book here, the banking legislation, uh, all that stuff is all listed here. I'll just point out this one link here. And all I want to do, all I'm trying to conceptually get here is to show you that this is here for you to look at. Okay, so this was the banking crisis, and it just basically shows you, uh, let me see if I can go in here for a minute. There was one chart in here just to show you as an example. Get to that chart. Let me see if I can find that silly chart. Okay, I'll do it this way. Okay, here we go. This was talking about the number of bank failures from 1934 to 1995. I'll see if I can make this. I don't know if I can make this any bigger or not. I don't think I can at this. Well, wait a minute. Yes, I can. I'm lying here. Okay, there we go. So you can see this happens to deal with a number of failures, and this happens to deal with the time frame. And as you can see right here, we did have from 1935 to 1945, we did have quite a few banking failures. Then all of a sudden we sort of, if you will, almost like dribbled along. We had some, maybe some bad decisions. We went along for a period of time. And then finally, right in this period of time right here, it was right in the 1980s, we all of a sudden took right off and went through the ceiling with all the banking failures. And it, what this article talks about is all of the contributing reasons why that happened. You know, stability in the economy. Uh, interest rates, deregulation, there are a lot of contributing factors that cause that to happen. The thing that you also want to get out of this is that it seems like the only time that we ever really buckle down and fix things is when we have a crisis. You know, in other words, then all of a sudden Congress calls everybody in, they sit down, they want to know what's going on, they want to know how they could have prevented it, they start passing legislation. That's what generates these kinds of things from happening. Uh, same thing like when we have a fuel crisis. If our, you know, as an example, if our, if our gas prices continued to go through the roof and they cost us a lot of money, that would be a crisis. That would wake people up. That would make people do something, change their, you know, their way of doing business. So, in other words, crises really are what's generating social change and political change within our economy and in, within the world economy. And I just wanted to show you that, and there's a lot of good reading there for you to take a look at. So I'm going to kind of come out of here for a minute. I'll go back to the next thing. The next link they had in here was something called Credit Unions Online. Uh, I thought this was sort of interesting. After I looked at it for quite some time, I started to realize that this is sort of a map 
because I, I, I could find some credit unions that I knew that existed, like Heritage, which is a credit union that I belong to, but I could also find where I couldn't find Golden One credit union in there. And after I started looking around for a while, I realized that what this is, is this is a place where you actually ask to have yourself put on the map, and that's why. So if that credit union hasn't done that, uh, you won't see it. But I wanted to show you California here. And you just go to any one of these states, and it will show you the credit unions. You go to California, and it will give you a list of the credit unions. And let me uh, F11 this. Okay. I think what's interesting about the credit union name in here is that you're going to start to see, as the book talks about, how these credit unions are all basically formed about around interests that people would have. So you'll find teachers' credit unions. You'll find all kinds of in interesting credit unions in here that were formed with the idea of meeting that particular group's needs. So you have things in here such as we have Allied Healthcare Credit Union, American River Health Pro Credit Union. There was one down in here that I wanted to do. You have something in here called Burbank City Employees Federal Credit Union. And uh, if you want to go, all the way down the bottom of the page here is where you can continue to link over and find other ones. Here's one that's Kaiser Permanente for, uh, Credit Union, which, by the way, just got merged with another credit union. My wife happens to belong to that. And this is such a small credit union that it's almost like you have to make an appointment to go in there, at least currently in the last few years, to withdraw money or make a deposit. It's a small little itty-bitty operation only for Kaiser employees. Okay? Um, if I go back here, there's. Uh, I'll see if I can find the one that's. Uh, I wish they would have had a easily had a search on here, but there's one in here for Heritage, uh, which is right here. The one that I happen to belong to, which used to be Mather Credit Union, and uh, this will just take you out to their uh, website. They happen to be located. Their main office, by the way, is out. I believe it's still on the old Mather Air Force Base. Okay, but they Heritage got merged with Mather or bought Mather out. That's how we ended up with Heritage, okay? So anyway, just want to let you know that this will give you a list of all the different credit unions that, uh, that, are, that have decided to list themselves in the United States is basically the way I could more or less put it. I'm going to go back to the next one here which is Real Estate Investment Trusts. I thought this was a good link. This was a really nicely well-laid-out page. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, because there's some animation on this page, too, I'm, I'm going to kind of, let me see, make this a little bigger and uh, come down here. first part of this gives you a little bit of story about what the book talked about, about what a real estate investment trust is. Let me see if I, I don't know if I can make this any bigger in text. Let me see, view, text size, I'll try larger. Oh, I can. I'll even try text size larger than that and see what, yes, I can. So then I'll go here and see if that looks a little better. It sort of does on the TV. Okay, so this first part here tells you what a real estate investment trust is. Okay, it just says real estate investment trust. A REIT is a company that owns and must, most cases, operates income-producing real estate. Some REITs finance real estate. To be a REIT, a company must distribute at least 90% of, uh, of its taxable income to the shareholders on an annual basis. So it tells you all of that. 
It also talks about the different types of REITs. There's three types of REITs. There's an equity REIT, which essentially owns real estate, and all of its stuff is in real estate, like they own real property and operate real property. So on one extreme, they buy an apartment house, and that's what their, their business is. The second kind is called a mortgage REIT. A mortgage REIT is one that uh, lends money directly to real estate owners and their operators or indirectly through the acquisition of loans and mortgages that they buy. Okay, And then on the other side, so that's the other extreme. And then in, the, in between, you have what we call a hybrid. And a hybrid means that they have some of the money invested in real estate where they manage and operate it on a, on a daily, weekly, and annual basis, such as running an apartment house. And on the other hand, they have some of their money where they've been buying and selling and, and getting their income from mortgages. Okay, This little chart down here, which will eventually once in a while will disappear because it's a flash animation, so it may do this during this period of time. But what it does is a nice little pie chart that shows where REITs have their money. And uh, I think it's going to refresh itself here in a minute. What it basically does is it says, you know, about 17% of their property is in res uh, they invest in residential. This shows you how much they have in office, which I think is somewhere around 19%. This is shopping centers, regional malls, diversified industrial property, mixed property, healthcare. They invest in healthcare, lodging, specialty, and self-storage, which is where we take the mini warehouse concept. Okay, that's what they're investing in. So this gives you a nice little pie chart to show you where that money is distributed. And then below that, they have some other things down here. They basically talk about where they stand in relation to the Dow Jones Industrial Averages. Okay. And finally, they just basically show you down here of, uh, of uh, dividends that they uh, pay out. Okay. And they have a chart there that animates. I just think it's a good place to go to get some basic information, uh, both uh, written information and also some graphical pictures of what we're talking about when we discuss a real estate investment trust. So I'm going to come back out of that, and I'm going to close that window. I also have a number of different lenders in here that they show up in the back of your book. They talked about the lending tree, so I put a link in here to the lending tree. The lending tree, if you watch their ads on television, this is the kind of ad that when you watch it on TV is where the husband and wife are sitting. I think this is the one where they're sitting in the living room, and there's a guy that looks very, very sophisticated sitting there with a tie on and a suit and tie on, and looks, he looks like a banker, and he gives them a quote on what their, you know, their mortgage payment is going to be. And after he gets all done with his little presentation, they say, thank you very much, and they go next, and you see all these people standing outside the door, and it's a whole bunch of other companies or bankers. The concept here is that when you shop for a loan, you're getting, uh, you're competing, or those companies are are competing with each other in order to provide you a loan. That's the concept behind it. That's one of the things that we're doing on the internet today, and of course you can do all this online. The idea behind this is you fill this thing out online, and then you get quotes back from these lenders. So that's one form. Okay. Another one, another financial institution that's in here that's a large one, we even have an office down the street here from the college, is Countrywide Financial. They, again, are in the home loan business. They are a mortgage banker slash mortgage broker type of an operation. 
Uh, been in business for years and years and years. They do all kinds of loans from government loans to, in other words, FHA, VA, conventional. They all do all kinds of loans. Again, same situation. You can go there, get a lot of help, a lot of assistance, apply online, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Next one that I think is pretty darn good. Now, I rate pretty darn good. You know, I've got my own qualifications. Number one is the website needs to be easy to understand. <laughs> it needs to be clean. I don't want to see a lot of flashing wheels and dials going on. I want to be able to find stuff pretty easy. Wells Fargo happens to have a really nice website. It's pretty well laid out with a lot of information to help consumers. So I'm going to take you there and show you what Wells Fargo has. Okay. Wells Fargo's website, and they have a lot of, I've also downloaded and put on the website here. Now, hopefully this thing will spin up here in a minute. I have put up on the website several documents that I downloaded from Wells Fargo's website. That was very easy for, to get. One was on uh, for first-time buyers. I'll show you where that is. And the second one is something called reverse mortgages. So I'll show you that. Anyway, underneath Wells Fargo Bank, and let me see. I may have. Let me see. I may have to maneuver some of this around a little bit. Okay. Yeah. I'll make it a little bit uh, for TV purposes here. Maybe a, in the larger sense. That looks pretty good. And then I'll do my old F11 and get rid of that. Okay. What'll happen here is that you'll notice in Wells Fargo they have several tabs that go across the top here. First of all, they talk about individuals, people. So these are products that they this that that would involve individual people that you might be interested in. So for example, you might be interested in online banking, checking, savings, certificates of deposit, credit cards, all that kind of stuff. You may be interested in loans, things like home equity loans, uh, uh, mortgages, getting a mortgage on a house. So these links take you right there. Student loans. You may be somebody that wants to get a student loan to go to college. Uh, Personal loans. Personal loans would be against your own signature. You may not have any. You may not be putting the car up to borrow. I'll go back here. You may not be putting the car up. In other words, we're not talking about an auto loan. We might be talking about a personal loan where you're just lending the money on your signature, or a shared secure loan where you're borrowing the money based on deposits you have. Uh, and also notice here that they ha also they have auto loans. Next one is they have things like mutual funds. They have brokerage, they have individual retirement accounts, they have uh, private client services, they have insurance. And when they have insurance, they have auto insurance, homeowners insurance, all kinds of insurance that you can get. And finally, other self-service, they have things like view your account so you can find out what your account balances are. You can uh, view checked images to see if they've been processed. In other words, you can do all this right here online. A couple other things I'll show you, and then we'll get into the mortgage thing. If you're a small business, they have things like online banking for small businesses. They provide payroll services, merchant services. Uh, they have all kinds of resources for those organizations. You'll also see in here, I'm not sure, where, oh, they'll have things like foreign exchange, handling foreign exchange where you're receiving or have to make payments or receive payments from another country uh, under another currency. They have all that there. And then finally, they have something here called commercial banking services, and they have you know online solutions, credit loan, you know where you're borrowing money to maybe finance your inventory in the bank, things like that. So I'm going to go back to individuals here, and I'm going to go to something called 
mortgage home mortgages. Under home mortgages, they have a couple things here. And the first thing I wanted to show you that I thought was kind of interesting is something called today's rate, which is all the way over to the right-hand side. This becomes important if you're just sitting there discussing with your family about buying a new home and you want to have some kind of an idea what the current interest rates are, you can go here and find out. So, for example, here, under today's rates, you click that button, and what will happen is it will give you a chart of today's rates, okay? And I'm going to kind of move this over a little bit so you can see it. And I want you to notice that they're, they're going to show you the programs uh, based on a couple things. First of all, I want you to notice a couple of the headings that they have here because this is a very important part of the real estate business. Notice that they're giving you the name product, they're giving you an interest rate, and they're giving you an annual percentage rate. They have a 40-year fixed rate loan, a 30-year fixed rate loan, a 15-year fixed rate. They have a 5-year arm, which is a 5-year adjustable rate mortgage, and a 3-year adjustable rate mortgage. It gives you all the interest rates over here on the right-hand side that they would charge for that. Now, remember, not to cloud the issue, the APR is not only including the interest rate, but it's including the cost of getting the loan. The next thing that I want you to notice up at the top that they have this little word called conforming. Okay, conforming. And if I click on that, if, or if I move over here, it says conforming. It says loan amount less than or equal to $417,000. This is what they mean by conforming. Now, if you remember, when we talked about one of the things that the lenders want to be able to do is to take and sell these mortgages after they've originated them. In other words, Wells Fargo may very well make these mortgages and say maybe after a period of time, say, you know what? I want to sell those mortgages because we need the money to do something else. What they have to do in order to sell it is they have to follow a specific set of rules that have been identified by Fannie Mae in the secondary market to buy those. One of the, one of the, one of the requirements is that the loan cannot exceed a certain amount. And that amount here in the Sacramento area happens to be $417,000. If it's $417,000 or less, it's considered to be a conforming loan. Now, another thing that you always want to keep in mind, too, under the conforming loan, when you go to get a loan or you're standing in the shopping line and you see a sign where they're quoting an interest rate, you'll notice down the bottom of the little advertisement, it'll tell you that it's a conforming loan, which means that it's meeting this requirement and it's for loans that are up to this value. If you go over that value, now you're into what we call a jumbo loan. So if you wanted to know what conforming is, you can click here on this little button. They're nice because what they do is they have a little pop-up window which tells you what a conforming loan is. It says conventional home mortgages eligible for sale and delivery to either Federal National Mortgage Association, Fannie Mae, or the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, FL, uh, FHLMC. These agencies generally purchase first mortgages up up to loan amounts mandated by congressional directives. So it tells you what that is, which I think is nice. You can always look that up. So you can kind of spit that off the top of your head and know where it is. Also notice that they put that up here, and notice that they had different levels. So, for example, your conforming loan rate is higher in two other places. Okay? Okay? Next, jumbo loan is anything that's above $417,000. And if you want to know what a jumbo loan is, you click here, 
And again, it tells you what a jumbo loan is. It says a loan that exceeds Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's loan limits, also called the non-conforming uh, non-conforming loan. Jumbo loans typically have higher interest rates. That's another thing. That's one thing that you know you as a homeowner are always going to want to watch out for. If you get a, for example, an adjustable rate mortgage, and maybe you got it, and at the time you got it, the conforming loan amount was maybe three hundred fifty-nine thousand dollars, which was a few years ago. And maybe, you know, if it was above that, you were paying a higher rate of interest. Now, all of a sudden, what's happened in, in the years that have passed by is now that, that conforming rate has gone up. So you would actually maybe get a little less of an interest rate. It's something you want to think about when you're getting these loans. Okay, so anyway, it gives you all that information here. All right, and let me go back here. Uh, another thing that I think is, uh, if I can remember where all of this stuff is, um, there is a loan calculator somewhere in here. Okay, if I can find it. Um, it escapes me right now. I'm looking for the loan calculator, and I can't see it on here. Refinance, track interest rates, but there is a loan calculator in here. Home buying tools. It might be under home buying tools. Let me see. Might be. Okay, uh, affordability, monthly payment, now amortization calculator right here. So, for example, if I'm sitting around and I want to know what my monthly payments are going to be on a loan, I can just go ahead in here. So, for example, I can put in here a loan amount. So I can say I'm going to finance something like a house, and it's going to be uh, $359,000, okay, I can put down whatever the appraised value is. I could put down $359,000 or, you know, $359,123. And then I, I put the term, say, th uh, 30 years. I can put whatever the interest rate is that I want, uh, property taxes, whatever. And then I can turn out, tell it to go ahead and calculate that. And it will come back with, and it shows me what my... Uh, Mortgages insurance is going to be. Wait a minute, I'm missing something here. Let me go back here to. It's hard to see. Let me go back. I'm looking for the mortgage calculator, credit, Wells Fargo. It's in here someplace. It's just the fact that I cannot see that particular calculator right now. Mortgage monthly payment calculator. I thought I did that one. Down payment, home buying. Go the other way. This way up here? It's uh, one, two, three down. Yeah, it's that's what I thought I had clicked on, but I'm not getting that. Okay, it's giving me the same thing here. When you loaded in your loan amount, you were missing a zero. Oh, that's what it was. Okay, let's go in here and see if I can do it again. Oh, uh, inputs. Okay. Oh. Right here, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Three zeros. One, two, three. Thank you, Bob. Three zeros helps. Okay. Now let's see if it works. Okay. Whew. Wow. This shows me what my principal and interest payments are going to be. This is my taxes and insurance. Okay. These are things that you can change, by the way. This is something that you may very well have to input. Like in California, the uh, taxes are going to be 1% of the sales price of the home. But this gives me an idea. So what this means is that I can sit there very easily without ever talking to anybody and calculate what my monthly payments are going to be based on whether I get, 
you know, like, for example, a 30-year loan or a 15-year loan. I can calculate all of that stuff very easily and see what's going on. I think also this gives me, if I remember correctly, it gives me some graphs as a result of that. So what it does is it shows me how my payments are going to go. So it shows me in the beginning, first five years, that I'm pay how much I'm going to be paying in principal and how much I'm going to be paying in interest. And as you can see, as this graph goes along, my my interest rate that I pay goes actually gets smaller and smaller, and but my principal amount gets higher and higher. Also, I can get tables in here too. And what the tables are going to do is to show me what my the effect of my monthly payments are going to be, and it'll take me through and it'll show me, for example, at the end of the first month what my monthly payments are going to be, how much is going to be remained or owed on the loan. How much is going to be the principal amount that's going to be paid? How much is the interest? And how much is the cumulative interest? And I can take that all the way out to the last payment. So, again, that's another tool that's really helpful. Okay, I'm going to switch back here for a minute. I'm going to close out of this window. I'm going to go back to uh, Wells Fargo one more time. And uh, actually, I don't know whether, okay, um, I think I'm going, to I'm going to show you where something is in here. I'm going to go back to home mortgages, and I'm going to go down, down the bottom down here, you see little links to things like first-time homeowners, okay? Uh, there's also one that's down here, it's either on this page or another one, they have home buying tools, uh, and I think all the way down the bottom here is something called reverse mortgage programs. Now, what I did is, in order to get these 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 files, which are like a PDF file, you had to put your name in there, and I went ahead and put my name in there, and then I downloaded the files. So what I wanted to do is to show you where I put those, and I'm going to go in here. I did the first one, which was the Home Buyer's Guide. Okay, I also put a link down here. It's an Adobe Acrobat PDF format, so if you didn't have Adobe Acrobat, you could click on that. I'm going to open this up, and I'm going to just take and move this, if I can do this, over this way a little bit so you see the whole thing. And I'm going to go ahead and increase its size. And this is just a guide. It's a 30-page guide that talks about buying a home. You know, it gives you all of the things that if you've never owned a home before, you know, the basics, what a mortgage was, you know, finding a mortgages, the process of the loan, how it's actually going to work. So everything is right in here, and I've already downloaded it for you. So you can download it, open it up, print it, uh, you know, and use that particular guide. What I really like about this is that, you know, when I go to the bookstores, I see a lot of books that are things that are titled like how to buy your first home, buying investment property, all those kind of things. What I'm finding is that a lot of these sites already have free guides that don't cost you any money at all that you can download, print out, read, do whatever you want. You're not spending any money. And it's a good, it's a good resource. I think that it's a good resource to look at. Another thing that I think that's, uh, let me see if I can move this thing over here again. Okay, no, that, not that one. It's the other one. Okay, this one here. I'm going to go back to, um, Back to uh, Wells Fargo again. Let me go forward once. And I'm going to show you the other one that I think is very important for people today, and that's called the Reverse Mortgage Guide. Okay? This is very, very important because there's a lot of us that are getting older. 
and typically when you hit 62 years of age or older, you now have an ability to continue to live in your house and borrow money out of it and get a monthly payment. But this is not something, in my opinion, that you want to jump off and do right away without actually doing the research. In fact, I believe now, I believe that if you're going to have your loan underwritten by FHA, which is the federal institution you have to go to, you must go to a mandatory educational training course so that you understand what it is that you're signing up for. But for people that have that are house rich but retirement income poor, this might be a solution for them. Okay? So anyway, we wanted to, wanted to show that to you. And um, I also had a couple other links in here that I wanted to show you. One more, and then we're getting close to the end. This is called mortgage. This is called um, the money brokers. This happens to be a company that deals with buying and selling those mortgages that we were talking about that private individuals have. They happen to be located over here on El Camino Avenue. They've been in business for years and years and years. They've been around forever. Uh, I thought this was a good link for you to be able to take a look at in case you were ever interested or wanted to know about how this worked. Uh, they have contact information, investment. Uh, all those things are in here that you can go in and at least find out a little bit about how these particular programs work. And I thought, again, that would be very interesting for for you to know about. Uh, it was at one point in time, I know in the late 70s and the early 80s, where these people that were doing this kind of investing were extremely critical to the success of the real estate business because the primary sources of funds were drying up and going away. So a lot of people at that time were assuming loans, and the owners, when they sold them, were taking loans back. And so people like this would end up coming into the transaction almost right off, right off the get-go because maybe the owner would take the loan back and maybe uh, with the idea in mind that they would sell it to an investor. So they were very actively involved in the business. One minute. Okay. So anyway, to kind of end everything up now, what I want to do is just uh, mention to you that we've talked about a lot of things. we talked about a lot of sources of funds that are in this marketplace. We've talked about a lot of different lenders. I think the key thing that I really want to stress to all of you, that it becomes important that you sort of become self-sufficient. I think it's important that you get familiar with the fact of being able, that once you understand how this process works, and you know now from reading the book and then looking at the website that this is not something the book made up. This is true. But I want you to be able to then go to these websites, find this information out so that you're able to help yourself and help your clients. Also, it's always up to date. So it's a very important resource for information. And with that, we're pretty close to the end for show six. And uh, get ready and study for the next exam, first midterm exam coming up. And I'll see you back here again for show number seven. Thanks for coming. See you then.